You're listening to another New Hope Chapel podcast. Hi, this is Justin Hibbard, pastor of New Hope Chapel. Thanks so much for listening. Today you'll be hearing from Julie Coleman, author and member of our teaching team, as she continues our series called Meeting Jesus. Well, good morning. My name is Julie Coleman. As Carl said, I'm a member of the teaching team here at New Hope Chapel. There are six of us. Um, I also do speaking outside of our church, um, and I have an opportunity for women um, in case you haven't heard already, we're doing a seminar next week, or actually it's in two weeks, and it's on kind of how to study the Bible. It's Bible study techniques. It's things I learned when I was in seminary, and um, it's going to be held at Bellcroft Bible Church in Bowie. It's been in the announcements um, that go around on the email, but it's a great seminar. It's an all-day thing um, where you're, you get a notebook, and you have hands-on instruction, and you get to work with things, and and talk with other people from different churches. Um, and so we're really excited about it. Uh, it includes lunch and the notebook, and it's $20, I think, for to register. So if you're interested, you can see me, or um, you can go to my website, uh, juliecoleman.org, and there's lots of, um, th- there's a registration thing there, and, and you can click over and sign yourself up. So we're excited. Melanie and I will definitely be there. <laughs> Since I'm teaching, she runs my PowerPoint for me because I'm really bad at multitasking. (laughs) Well, we've been working through a great great series all summer long on the people that met Jesus. Um, And, you know, the teaching team members, when Justin proposed this series, he opened it up and said, who do you want to teach? You know, who's your favorite story? What, you know, and so we all got to pick our own. Um, And it's really been a very interesting mix of people that we have ended up covering, uh, Jews, Gentiles, the ones who were considered sinners to religious leaders, Roman officials, and the meek and powerless. So there's a whole gamut of people that encountered Jesus, and it was a life-changing event. Well, today we're going to be talking about a story of three long-term followers of Jesus. They joined his ranks very, very early in Jesus' ministry and became very important. Uh, Two of them were the inner circle of the three and eventual leaders in the early church. I really had a good time looking at these three people this week because not only are we given a glimpse of their experience with Jesus at the time, but the Bible also gives us a wonderful picture of how God transformed them into something even better as time went on through the message and the truth of Jesus and the resurrection. So we can take that principle that transformed them and pick it up and move it over to the 21st century where we are today and find some real relevance for how it can transform us as well. Well, they were destined to be leaders in this new body of believers that would be called the church. Um, We've all had good, bad leaders in our lives, haven't we? I was a school teacher for 20 years. There were lots of principles I've served under. And I can tell you, there are good principles and there are really bad principles. And I've, I've served under both. My second teaching job um, I had was a lady who was very uh, convinced that she had to make herself look good at all times in front of the boards, I guess for job security. So every decision she made, everything she told us to do was all about her and how she would look. And I'll tell you, that was really detrimental to the school because it was never about the kids and what they needed, and it certainly wasn't about the teachers and the support that they needed in order to be able to serve down in the trenches. But I've also had uh, leaders, uh, principals, with real servant hearts. And they were all about the kids. They were all about those children who would, um, what they needed in order to mature into people that we would be proud to have. Um, Those are the kind of principles I always wanted to work for because it wasn't about them at all. It was all about 
They're serving the school. And that's the kind of leader that's effective. Well, our story today is a story of three people who started out as that first kind of leader, the bad kind, looking for self-promotion, looking to get their significance from how they led. Instead, God transformed them, and I think partially through this incident that we're going to be looking at today, into that second kind of leader with a servant heart and uh, ready to uh, minister to people around them. So let's take a look. We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 20, and it's verses 20 to 28. We'll have the words up here if you need them. I I, I encourage you to open your Bibles if you have them because it's great to be able to look at the context and and, uh, re-look at these things as we flash on to the next screens. So we're looking at Matthew chapter 20. Okay. Let's ask God to help us. Lord, we just ask your help this morning as we look at this passage. Help us to find, identify, understand the message that you have for us today in what occurred between these three people and Jesus Christ. Help us to understand the truth of what he said. Help us to understand the context of the kind of kingdom that you are intending to bring. And we just uh, ask God that you would just be a presence. Your Holy Spirit would guide us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, what do you wish? And she said to him, command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right hand and one on your left. But Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? And they said to him, We are able. He said to them, My cup you shall drink. But to sit on my right and my left, that's not mine to give. But it's for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great men exercised authority over them. It is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Well, before we can really understand this story, we need to know a few things. First of all, we need to find out who was this mother. Well, in another uh, part of the gospel, uh, the mother of James and John is named Salome. She was the wife of Zebedee, she was, uh, who was a very successful water fisherman, freshwater fisherman, and he labored on the Sea of Galilee. They lived in the town of Capernaum, which was about 20 miles away from Nazareth, which was Jesus' hometown. And fishing was a very profitable livelihood because um, the the meal of the uh, Israelite was only uh, once a week they would eat meat. The rest of the time they would eat fish. So fish was a huge industry. Josephus, who was an ancient writer at the time of Christ, one time a governor of Galilee, wrote that there were 330 fishing boats in business there. Um, Zebedee was affluent enough to have an actual crew to hire and pay, um, and he had at least two of his adult sons working for him, James and John. 
Now, so we know that about Salome, and we also know that she was a longtime acquaintance of Jesus because very soon after Jesus was baptized, he called four fishermen at Capernaum to come and be fishers of men, including Salome's two sons. So it's likely that as they became disciples of this rabbi, that Jesus would have visited her home a lot, and she would have been serving a lot of meals because that's how he existed, was through the hospitality of others in his earthly ministry. So she would have known him a very long time. And eventually, Luke 8 tells us that she actually became a disciple of Jesus Christ and traveled with him. Now, she was one of a group of women that Luke identifies, but it's really interesting because that's something that really departed from the norm. No rabbi would have been seen dead having women travel with him and be part of his entourage. But Luke very clearly tells us that Jesus did. Um, so she was a disciple. And lastly, and, and probably one of the bigger things that she did in her life, she was the mother of James and John. Now, it's important to know that because James and John, her boys, and I have boys, I know what it is to be wanting to promote my boys, um, it seems pretty likely that that request that she made of Jesus was actually not her request. It was something the boys had passed on to her, and I think that for several reasons. First of all, right in the chapter before, in Matthew 19, Jesus tells his uh, disciples, all 12, that they would sit on 12 thrones judging the tribes of Israel. So now Salome, a chapter later, is asking him about where they're going to sit when they're judging. So obviously the boys have passed on that knowledge to her. And I can just imagine him saying, Mom, Jesus likes you. Maybe you could just put a little word in. You know, yeah, we're all, we're all going to lead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But who's going to sit on his right and his left? Don't you think it should be us? Um, and I think that Jesus knew exactly who that request was coming from because you'll notice, or I hope you notice as we were reading that passage, that Jesus does not answer Salome. She makes the request and he looks at them, the two men, and says, uh, are you willing to take the cup that I'm going to take? Because that's what it's going to mean. Um, he talks to them. He doesn't talk to her. So his response kind of shows exactly who was asking the question. And the other clue is when the other disciples heard about it, they were mad. But they weren't mad at Salome. They were mad at the two men because they too knew exactly. Mark actually gives the same account, but in his account, he has the men doing the asking and not Salome. And I think that's because he knew darn well who was asking the question and he skipped over any pretense of making it about the mother. So who were James and John then, the sons of Salome? Well, they were fishermen like their dad, and Jesus called them out of that livelihood to make an offer. I want to make you fishers of men. And so they followed Jesus Christ. But why would they be so bold as to ask a question like this about ruling on his right and his left? Well, we get some clues from Scripture. Jesus actually had nicknamed them the sons of thunder. I love that. The sons of thunder. Because that was a nickname fitting men that would be audacious in speech. And uh, they were an example of that because in Luke, there was a Samaritan village where Jesus had sent them to kind of prepare for them to come and visit. And the village turned them away and said they didn't want Jesus to visit. Well, John and James were outraged. And this is what they said. Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Of course, Jesus 
was very quick to rein in their condemning anger. And he said, you do not know what kind of spirit you're of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Sons of thunder. Then another time, well, actually, this is Mark's uh, same depiction of this scene that we just read. He gives a very little interesting bit of conversation. This is what they say. James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, and get this, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Uh, Jesus, they're talking to Jesus here. And Jesus said to them, and I can almost imagine him smiling, well, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant that we may sit one on your right and one on your left in your glory. The sons of thunder. It's who they were. It was a very appropriate nickname. Also, James and John were part of the inner circle. There were three men that Jesus took special attention to teach and to mold and gave special privileges that some of the other disciples didn't have. It was James and John and Peter. Those were the inner three. They actually were the only ones present when Jesus raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. Just those three. And again, at the transfiguration where Jesus was, uh, his glory was illuminated and he was standing up on the mountain, they were the only three that saw it. So there was this inner circle thing. So maybe that gave them some boldness in making this request. And the third one, and this one is a little bit of conjecture, a little bit of scripture, is were they actually Jesus's cousins? Now, Stick with me. I want to show you why I think there's a possibility of that family relationship. Because first of all, in second and third century writings, there's a lot of speculation that Jesus, James, and John were actually cousins. And that assumption comes from a comparison of three lists given in three of the Gospels of the women that were there witnessing the, the um, crucifixion of Christ. Okay, Matthew, he gives this list. He says, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee, Salome, right? Mark gives the same list, or we think it is. Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, the less, and Joseph, and Salome. And then the third list, his mother, Jesus' mother, and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. So you see these lists. Well, let's, let's pick this apart a little bit. First, in each list, we see Mary Magdalene. So we can cross her off there. Okay, the next we see Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, who's still, in Mark's depiction, Mary, the mother of James, the less and Joseph. And then Mary, the wife of Clopas, we can, you know, sort of assume. You know, we we may assume is the same as these other Marys that they're talking. And by the way, everybody seems to be named Mary around there. I read a statistic once. 50% of all women were named Mary at the time of Jesus. Talk about a popular name, okay? But then let's take a look at the last things that that, that that list has in common. The mother of the sons of Zebedee, Mark calls her Salome, but John names her as his mother's sister. Now, there's something we have to assume here. We have to assume that the writers are naming the exact same three women, and that may or may not be true. There may have been more women, so that may or not, may not be true. But first, second and third century writers assumed that this made them actual cousins. As a matter of fact, I even read somewhere when, when I was writing on the uh, wedding of Cana that it was, you know, that maybe it was Mary was actually a relative and that's why she was helping with the wedding itself and that maybe it was even John that was getting married. 
Lots of speculation. We don't know these things, but it's interesting. But if they were his cousins, it would explain that idea of being familiar enough to say something like, sit us at your right and your left. They're family members, and he was going to establish a kingdom. So it does make some sense. But again, conjecture. Don't go around quoting that. But I just thought it would be interesting for you to look at. Well, where then did they go wrong? Where, where were the disciples totally misinformed, totally out to lunch when they made this request to Jesus? Well, I think we can look at several misunderstandings that they actually had because the nature of their request demonstrates that Jesus had come to establish a powerful earthly kingdom. And that conviction reflected actually the very common Jewish messianic thought at that time. They misunderstood the prophets. Um, the Old Testament prophets themselves didn't really understand what the Messiah was going to be doing. You see, they had really kind of two faces of what Jesus, what the Messiah would be like. The first face was of this victorious leader who would bring them to political freedom, freedom who would conquer their oppressors and make them a self-ruling state once more, and uh, they would be able to. He would be able to you know, unite the people, and that's an exciting picture of Jesus. But there was also other things that the prophets said about the Messiah, things like how he would suffer and how he would die and how he would be beaten beyond recognition. recognition. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. Things like that. Well, so there were two kind of pictures of the Messiah. And by the way, Melanie said, Mom, make sure to tell them that you made this graphic. I said, I think they're going to be able to tell. <laughs> but I didn't do that bad. Come on. But anyway, <laughs> I know, I snow-capped them. I thought that was pretty good. But anyway, so you've got these two pictures of Christ. You've got this suffering servant and this ruling king. And from a distance, as the prophets were prophesying way hundreds of years into the future, um, they were only really seeing those two mountain peaks. Click. There it is. Okay. So, so they could see. And, you know, I used to work at a camp in New Hampshire and, in my early days, and there were beautiful mountains surrounding the lake. It was just a gorgeous setting. But you could not tell that there were a bunch of mountains. You could just see this, you know, big green expanse of mountain in front of you until it would be really cloudy and foggy and then the fog would separate between the mountains and you go, oh my goodness, there's like four peaks between us and the lake. So, just so, ama- you know, so amazing that you could see, see that once the fog was in place. I think that's what happened. I think the prophets were, were take, took this suffering servant, this ruling king, and they had all these prophecies all mixed up together. Why? Because that's how they saw them. And it wasn't until later after Jesus came and became the suffering servant, that they could actually uh, see that there were actually two faces of of Jesus that were being exposed. I have a friend. Her name is Eileen. We've been friends since fifth grade. She's one of my dearest, oldest friends in my life. Um, She was pretty kooky. Actually, she is still pretty kooky. And she did a lot of very strange things as we were growing up. Made me laugh like nobody else. That's part of the reason why I love her so much. She does make me laugh. And so she would do very strange things. 
Um, I, I know when we were in college, somebody was telling me that uh, a group stopped to go get Dunkin' Donuts on their way up to some conference, and she got out of the car and took off her hat and was doing a soft shoe dance across the front of Dunkin' Donuts, and people were actually dropping money into her hat. Uh, she's been known to wear underwear on her head at birthday parties. Um, she used to send me the remains, not too gross, but scary enough that I opened my letters in college over the garbage can, of her science experiments. Um, when she was taking science in college, we went to different schools. Um, but anyway, she, she has a lot, of, a lot of strange things that she does, and she's just, it's fantastic. It's just part of who she is. We all love her. Well, she got engaged to this guy named Bruce, and Bruce is a pretty serious-minded guy and, and pretty intense, and um, she loved that about him because she's got a lot of depth spiritually, and so you know, that was the kind of part that they both connected on, and so they had this relationship, and they're getting ready for Mary, but they never, she told me one day on the phone, calls me Zion. She said, Zion, I've never really shown him, you know, that other side of me. I said, well, Eileen, you better show him because you don't want that to happen after you're married. You've got to warn him a little bit. So she's like, yeah, I know, I know. I'm just trying to figure out how to do it. And so anyway, she called me a few weeks later and said, well, Zion, he knows. I said, so what happened? She said, well, we were coming out of church and these two little boys came running up, and they had one of those little inchworms hanging by a string that they'd found down a tree. And they tried to scare Eileen with it, and they put it up close to her face, and she ate it. <laughs> I said, how did Bruce react? She said, he wasn't happy. I said, Eileen, you couldn't have started with underwear on the head and worked your way up to eating worms? <laughs> two faces, two faces of Eileen. Well, there were two faces of Jesus Christ, too. And so the, the disciples, they wanted that second mountaintop. Not so interested in the first. And they didn't understand that the first was actually was going to pave the way for the second. And so they, didn't, they just had a misunderstanding. Jesus said also their misunderstanding of sharing the cup because they said, sure, we'll share your cup. Well, what did that even mean? Well, in ancient days, a king would customarily hand a cup his guests at a royal banquet, and that act actually became known as a metaphor um, for the life and experience that God handed out to men. So the cup is like my, my life, the stuff that I'm going to experience. Um, Psalm 23, 5 uses it in that way. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Well, it's that metaphor. Well, what was Jesus' cup? that they were going to share. I don't think Jesus meant the glory part at the time. He might have. It might have been included in there. But one part they weren't thinking about was the suffering that he had already endured and was going to endure. Um, he was rejected already by his hometown. His family thought he'd lost his mind. Um, his, uh, the religious establishment had totally rejected him. In fact, called his power power from Satan himself. Um, as he traveled from town to town, he didn't even have the most basic of comforts. He had to rely on the hospitality of others. He once said, the foxes have holes and the birds of air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. His disciples were frequently misinterpreting his words and his teachings, and this is in the future of this story, but they would fail him at his hour of most need when he was in the garden hoping for their emotional and uh, support. And on the night of his arrest, he was beaten beyond recognition. He was spat by the crowds of Jerusalem. Jesus' suffering was, went far beyond 
what he endured on the cross, taking on God's wrath. And to follow a suffering Messiah would mean walking in his footsteps and experiencing in some way what Jesus had experienced. Their commitment to him actually would, as Jesus said, they would share the cup. It would actually cost both James and John ultimately their lives. James would be murdered by Herod in his belief. I think we see that in Acts chapter 12. And John was relegated to solitary confinement on the island of Patmos and lived his days alone until he died. Jesus told his disciples at the Last Supper, I've given you a model to follow so that as I have done for you, you should do also. No slave is greater than his master nor any messenger greater than the one who sent him. So in other words, in suffering for Jesus' name's sake, James and John would share the cup of Christ, but I don't think what he meant was what they were actually clamoring for. You know, they, they assumed that all Israel would look to him and Rome would acknowledge him as king. And, and you know, ironically, a Roman official did crown him, but it wasn't a royal crown. It was a crown of thorns. And he did put a royal robe on him, but it wasn't to give respect. It was so he could be mocked. And all Israel did look up to him, but it wasn't as he was on a throne. It was that he hung on a criminal's cross up on a hill. What the disciples would see at one point until they understood as a totally humiliating failure would actually be the greatest victory of all. The standard of greatness in God's kingdom is not wielding power to one's own gain. The standard of greatness in God's kingdom is the cross, the cross of Jesus Christ. Okay, so what do we do with that story? Here we are now in the 21st century. Um, It's something that we need to think about. How should this transform us as well? Um, Now, remember, the disciples had already been promised positions of authority. Jesus had already told them in Matthew chapter 19 that they would be ruling with Jesus, 12 thrones thrones and judging Israel. Um, Their dedication to Jesus was not going to go unrewarded. They already knew this, but they wanted more. It wasn't enough. They wanted the most privileged roles, the places of honor. They wanted to be seated at the right and and left hand of Jesus because fame and power is never enough. It will never satisfy. But that kind of self-promotion that they were trying to do, that's the way of the world. It's how we're all taught. Um, We admire people like Donald Trump or maybe Mark Zuckerberg to this world Impressed by their wealth and their power. We're impressed that they're self-made men. We really like it when it's a a rags-to-riches story. We love that. But God's kingdom is different. It's not how he runs things. It's not about promoting ourselves or our agenda. Josh was just talking this morning in Steve's Sunday School class that it's an upside-down kind of kingdom. And that's exactly the kind of kingdom that Jesus was bringing to the world. Now, I've got, I made a little chart here, and I want to compare what the world values as compared to what the kingdom of God values, because they're really quite opposite. The first is ambition. We love those self-made men, those people that were able to go from you know, nothing to great and powerful and, 
and rich and all of that. But in, in God's kingdom, it's all about dying to self. The opposite of that. On uh, 2 Corinthians 4.11, it says, For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may be revealed in our mortal bodies. Dying to self is the way of the kingdom. The world likes power and influence. But in God's kingdom, the opposite is true. It's humility. It's yielding. Yielding to the Holy Spirit that's in us. Ephesians 5.18 says, Do not get drunk with wine. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. That's the idea of don't be under the influence of this. Be under the influence of the Spirit, right? And then again, James 4.12, Humble yourself in the presence of the Lord, and he'll lift you up. It's humility. It's being under God's um, authority is what we value in the kingdom of God. The third thing in the, king, uh, in the world is self-promotion. Uh, we love the people that just, you know, have been, become powerful and, and, and uh, yield that power around. But instead, our value in the kingdom of God is to glorify God, not ourselves. Jesus told his disciples in Matthew, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father that's in heaven, not yourself. And last of all, one thing the world values is success. We love our success stories. I mean, uh, you know, if you're rich and powerful, you must have something good to say. And uh, people are willing to listen. But instead of being successful and having people wait on you and being up above all these people, in the kingdom of God, it's the exact opposite. Servants of all. Jesus told his disciples that. Many who are first will be last and the last first. Jesus called the twelve and said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. It's an upside-down kingdom. God set it up this way for very good reason. I'm not trying to tell you that I knew what was going on in the mind of God, but I can tell you this. In a kingdom like that, the one who's going to be glorified is God himself. And that's only the right thing because he deserves that and more. He's worthy of nothing less. But here's the other thing. In his goodness, as he set up a kingdom in that way, it actually benefits us too. God just works like that. In his goodness, he takes this good thing and makes it good for us as well. Because here's the thing. Ironically, charging around, trying to promote our goals, our agenda of gaining prestige or finding some sense of significance is to travel down a road which actually leads us away from the very thing we're looking for. Nelson Rockefeller, one of the richest men alive at the time, that's actually a picture when he was running uh, for president, <laughs> candidate back then, and Nelson Rockefeller was worth more than $1 billion back in the early uh, last century. Inflation, that would be today about $13.8 billion. The man had some money. He was the richest man in the U.S., actually in history of the U.S. And someone once asked him, how much money do you have to make before it's enough? And his answer was, just a little bit more. Because no matter how much we accumulate, you, no matter how many material possessions that we get, no matter how much prestige we might earn, 
no matter how much importance we might uh, feel or significance, however we pursue that self-fulfillment, we will never obtain it through those things. It's just not going to happen because we always want just a little bit more. I found a great quote by some economists. Uh, it's in a book. It says, The economi economics of affluence demands that things that were special for us last year must now be taken for granted. It's the law of diminishing returns. What we think will satisfy us, if I could just have this, if I could just publish a book, then I could relax. <laughs> that didn't work out so well for me because that's not where our significance can come from. Praise from others today will not be enough for tomorrow. I can tell you that right now. Material goods amassed will only bring a temporary relief from that quest for significance. Because like a drug addict, it's going to take more and more and more to give us that same sense of satisfaction and fulfillment. It's going to remain frustratingly out of our reach if we are chasing after that significance and fulfillment the wrong way. It's chasing the wind. It's never enough. Y'all like cotton candy? I know Amy does. And, uh, we, you know, we gave out cotton candy last year, and she did a great job of handing it out to the kids at the carnival. But, you know, you take a mouth of that cotton candy, and it's just a sweet burst into your mouth, but it just dissolves like that, and it's gone. And I think that's how that kind of a thing, if we're going after our sense of significance and fulfillment based on these things that the world would tell us to do, it's like cotton candy, here today, gone tomorrow. Our problem is not just insecurity. Our problem, I think, is in a misplaced sense of identity. So what's the remedy? Well, it's simple. We need to understand our identity in Christ. We need a clear sense of who we are in him, that we are significant to God. He knows the number of hairs on our head. He knows our thoughts before we think them. He's with us when we sit, when we rise. Psalm 139 is a wonderful um, example of all the ways that God knows us and loves us. We're significant to him. He's not just redeemed us and given us salvation. He's adopted us as his children, a permanent relationship. And part of that adoption in the privilege is that we are co-heirs with Christ. And it's just an amazing thing. That's who we are in Christ. We and because who we are, we have a clear sense of purpose in our life. Our response to his love and grace to us is just to glorify him in all that we do. We want him to get the glory because we get where it all comes from. And we also can have a self-confidence anchored in God, who's our provider. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. All of these enable us to stop chasing after the cotton candy that we've been doing, the status, and opt for the real thing. And when we get that real thing, true satisfaction comes. There's no greater joy than being used by him to help others come to a deeper knowledge of him. And there's no greater peace than when we're at the center of his will. Well, did John and James and Salome ever really get what Jesus had been saying? Yes. And I can tell you why I know that. 
If you go to 1 John, which is one of the epistles that John himself wrote, um, this is the same man now who was ready to call down fire and brimstones from heaven and wipe out that Samaritan village. This is what he writes. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. Think he gets it? And then he says later on, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Where is that selfish ambition that John was sporting all that time? It's gone. It's gone. It's great. It's disappeared. And in place of it, John is trying to inspire in his readers agape love. Agape, which is self-sacrificing love between the saints. What a beautiful transformation we can see. Living for Christ is going to involve sacrifice. It's going to involve suffering because after all, we're following a Savior who freely sacrificed and who freely suffered. It's the way of the kingdom. But in the end, it's worth it. It's worth it all because, first of all, God is not going to forget our willingness to put ourselves aside in the interest of showing him to the world. But part of his reward we're going to receive right now in this lifetime as we discover, finally, contentment and peace and satisfaction in living in the way of the kingdom. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this story. Thank you for the transformation that you brought about in the lives of these men and their mother. We ask, God, that you would help us to gain our sense of significance, to gain our fulfillment in how you view us, in what our place in your kingdom is. Lord, that's satisfying. I pray for each person here that they might examine those things in their lives where they're chasing after cotton candy and redirect themselves to pursue that wonderful, fulfilling, sustaining meal. We just um, ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to New Hope Chapel's podcast. Located in Arnold, Maryland, New Hope Chapel is a small expression of the much larger body of Christ that spans across the world. We're a group of believers helping each other on our lifelong journeys to become like Jesus. While we have a variety of distinctives that make us a unique church, our main desire is to be God's church, to love Him, follow Him, to learn from Him, to let Him lead us and change our lives. We are His disciples, and He is our rabbi. Join us in the story that God is writing called New Hope Chapel. To learn more about our church, visit us at newhopechapel.org or check us out on Facebook slash newhopechapelmd. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and iTunes. Music kindly provided by the least of these. Thanks again for listening and God bless.